Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 27, Diane, Living the Al-Anon Principles in Marriage. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers, and I'm the author of Realistic Hope, the family survival guide for facing alcoholism and other addictions. And I'm Kira Arriaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we'll hear Casey's interview with Diane, who tells the story of her journey, setting a hard boundary with her alcoholic husband, finding recovery in Al-Anon, and seeing her husband find recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. All this after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Let's hear that interview with Diane. All right. It is such a pleasure to have you here on the program with us. Will you take a moment to introduce yourself and say what you are doing on a program called Addiction and the Family? Well, my name is Diane, and I'm on this podcast because I have lived through the experience of loving and living with someone who's addicted and really got on the other side of it and I'm living a joyful, happy, full life today, which I doubted would happen in the beginning, but I just would share my experience and my strength and hope with anyone hoping they could find what I found in recovery. Wonderful. Well, if you don't mind, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Just start wherever it started. Okay, well, I met my husband in college and, you know, we drank like college kids. I never saw him drunk. I never got drunk. We continued to see each other. Several years after college, we married. And interestingly enough, I already knew that he was drinking more than I was drinking. But his proposal 
for marriage to me was, Diane, will you marry me if I slow down my drinking? And this was before I realized that he had a problem with alcohol. I don't know that he was an alcoholic yet, but not full bloom. But anyway, he somehow brought in his troubled drinking to his proposal to me. Did I hear that? No. My first response to myself was, I can get this going. I can take care of this. Let's get married. And yes, you will slow down your drinking. And I really believed that because I didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism at that point. And so we married and were very happy. We had two little boys. And when they were three and one, his drinking had gotten worse and worse. We lived in Houston at the time. He was a professional and uh, he could see that it was getting worse. And so he decided that if we would leave Houston, he could slow down his drinking. And what I know today is a lot of people call that the geographic cure that if I'll just move location, I can get hold of this drinking situation. And so I thought when he said that, well, okay, let's move to San Marcos where we moved. And I really thought that would take care of it. And of course it didn't because he was alcoholic and he didn't have control over his drinking. So we went into this journey with, he probably knew more about it than I did. He never really, talked about alcoholism until he decided to, to uh, reach for sobriety. But before that, we moved to San Marcos. It only got worse, which happens. Alcoholism is the progressive disease. And um, so I started going to Al-Anon. I had a friend in Houston who was in the program and she had talked to me about it when I was in Houston. And she took me actually to two or three meetings before we moved. And at every meeting, I left thinking, well, those people are very nice, but, you know, I can do this. And he just needs to slow down and I can encourage that and all that. And when you were telling yourself, I can do this, what was it that you were thinking you could do? Well, I just thought I could encourage him. I could love him enough to make him want to do it. I wasn't one who was pouring out the alcohol you know, because I didn't realize how bad it was at the time. I just, I was ignorant about the disease of alcoholism. That's the bottom line. At that point in my life, I thought if you're alcoholic, you're under a bridge or you're, you know, somewhere just unproductive. And my husband was able to be what is called a functioning alcoholic for about three or four or five years. It did begin to really affect his life and the short version of my story is that I started going to Al-Anon a couple of years after we moved to San Marcos. I was embarrassed. I thought I should be able to fix this. I was the mother in the household and so I did not, I didn't even look to see if there were meetings at San Marcos. I drove to Austin where nobody would see me or know me and I started going to meetings and it was absolutely the smartest thing I ever did, not necessarily to go to Austin, but to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Because for the first time in my life, I heard people talking about alcoholism. You know, I asked my mother years later, did you and daddy have any friends who were alcoholic? Did I see it as a child and just not realize it? 
And she said, well, you know, we didn't really know it, but we knew so-and-so drank too much. And in retrospect, I think he might have been an alcoholic. Of course, we know alcoholics can only label themselves. They're the ones who call themselves an alcoholic. So anyway, I thought about that a lot. And I, I thought about just, I was ashamed that I couldn't fix this problem. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I was the mother. I was a loving wife. Why couldn't he love me enough to stop drinking? So it wasn't until I heard the stories of the people in Al-Anon, and that's what was so refreshing about Al-Anon is people were so honest. They said things I thought I would never say. I didn't think I would ever tell my story. Here I am telling it to people I don't even know who's gonna be listening to this. But I think it's an important story for people to hear because it was important for me to hear as people in that meeting described what was frustrating to them, what they were living with, and I could identify with it. You know, it, the, the facts could have been different. It could have been a child, it could have been a parent. Many of them were husbands, spouses of people who were in the Al-Anon meeting, but I was just taken aback by how honest they were about what was going on. and eventually it all began to soak in and I could see the commonalities among all of us. But the other thing I could see is that they had found, I won't say a solution to the alcoholism, they had found a solution for themselves to live their lives and not totally focused on the alcoholic. And when I started Al-Anon, I was totally focused on the alcoholic in my life. And driving home from Austin, I would be thinking, okay, now she said this, and so what can I do with that? And he said this. One meeting, there was an older woman who said something, I don't even remember now what she said, but it was spot on in talking about her husband finally finding sobriety. I put a bead on her right away. I thought, I'm gonna go find out what the solution is. I went over to her and asked her something about how she got her husband sober or how he was doing today. And she said, oh honey, he died 10 years ago. And I said, well, why are you still coming? And she said, because I come for me. It helps me be the person I wanna be, not focused on other people's problems and thinking that I have the solutions for other people's problems. That was a huge eye opener for me. And I think that was the day driving home from Austin that I had to pull over on the shoulder and I just started to cry. And I think that's the first time I ever realized that I am powerless over someone else's drinking. And it broke my heart because I thought I could fix it. But I realize now that it's a huge relief to be able to let go of that and start to focus on me and what is it about me that I think I can do that for someone else? And what is the alcoholism doing to me that I can work on myself? Because I really am the only person I can change. So I'll always be very grateful for the people in that meeting in Austin that I went to, their honesty, their love, their support. When I got ready to walk in the room, I thought I was at the wrong place because I heard peals of laughter coming out and I turned to leave because I thought that can't be Al-Anon, they're laughing. And a lady popped her head out and said, you looking for an Al-Anon meeting? And I said, yeah. And she said, honey, come on in. 
And, you know, they were laughing before the meeting because they're good friends and they're sharing what's going on in their lives beyond alcoholism. And then once the meeting started, the focus is on living with an alcoholic and surviving and thriving and moving far beyond that into a much better life. That's really beautiful. So for our listeners, just to get an idea of kind of the timeline that this took, about how old were you and your husband when you first met? Let's see, I think I was going into my senior year in college, so I was probably 21, and Jim was 23. He was finishing up law school. And so then he moved to New York City and I moved to Boston. And, you know, he talked a lot about that move for him was pivotal, not so much for his working life, but in his drinking life, because he moved to a place where when he went out to lunch, people drank. Back in the 60s, you didn't see so many people having cocktails in Texas. And of course, when we were growing up, it was a dry state. Where we grew up, it was dry. And anyway, so, you know, he was drinking then, but still functioning in his legal career and all that. We moved to Houston for other reasons than that. It's hard for a Texan to stay away from Texas. So we both came back, we got married, and I would say maybe about four years after college, it was progressing. But you know how when you're close to something, you don't see the progression like people outside the bubble see it. And I look back now and it was coming on pretty quickly over a three or four year period, but he was good at hiding it for a long time. He mostly drank at work. After hours, he would stay. He would go to work on the weekends to work on cases. And I think that was his time to get away and drink. So then we moved to San Marcos and it was about, I think we were here two years before what I believe today, I hit my bottom. His brother had come over one day and we tried to do an intervention on Jim. It didn't work. He stormed out and his brother kind of washed his hands of him and was just furious with him because of what he was causing the family, the pain. And if I can pause you there for just a moment, I want to see what was that like for you to have that intervention, to see your husband storm out, his brother say he's washing his hands of everything. How old were you and what were you going through? Well, by then I was probably, let's see, we had our older son, so I must have been about 30. I think we moved here when I was 30 or 31. And it was really disappointing because I'd gone to the library and checked out a book on doing an intervention. And so I just thought, I'm going to take these steps and say these things and spill it all about the harm he was causing and so forth. And it'll work because that's what the book said. And it didn't work at all. Intervention did not work for us. It might work for some people. I'm not saying you shouldn't do an intervention. I've tried it because I was willing to go to any lengths. I put up with a lot for a long time. But as I say, I did hit my bottom. I tried the intervention. I had tried fussing and arguing, and I'm not a fusser and an arguer. I'm not a screamer. I'm not any of that by nature. But I was willing to try anything. So I just tried shaming and screaming and intervention, and none of that worked. And what finally happened was I started Al-Anon. I went for a couple of years, and this is my story. That's all it is. It's not suggestions for anyone. 
It's not a prescription. I've tried to get prescriptions for sobriety from people in Al-Anon. They don't give them. All I have to share is my experience, my strength, my hope, and what happened in my life. But I did finally get to the point after a couple of years in Al-Anon, because now I was focusing on myself and I was really seeing the digression of my dear husband who was killing himself. We did, I forgot to mention, I think his best man and best friend and I took him to two different halfway houses after we had spent a lot of money on a treatment center in Austin, which didn't work. Six weeks later, he was back drinking worse than when he went in. So for him, that didn't work. So I was just running out of options and really beginning more to focus on my responsibility to our sons. And I thought, you know, I can't do anything about Jim's drinking, but I can do something about the person I am and the mother I am. And so I took out a restraining order against him and that was very difficult. He worked at the courthouse, that was his job. And for me to have to go to a judge that he went before and ask for that. But after I finished going over with the judge why I needed the restraining order, wanted the restraining order, he said to me, Diane, people are going to be so happy that you're doing something for Jim. He is very sick. I didn't know people realized that. I thought we were hiding it very well. And it turned out to be such a blessing for that judge to say to me, you are doing the right thing because I felt like a betrayer of the first order. So anyway, they took out the restraining order on Jim and he was away from home for about maybe a month to six weeks. And he came back to town and called and asked me if he could come back home. And I didn't want him to. Every fiber of me screamed, do not let him come back. But the one thing that was different is that I had listened to so many people in Al-Anon talk about recovery, that it happened in their lives. And I thought, you know, I don't know if it's gonna happen, but he sounds more committed this time. And I thought, you could be fooling yourself but I just, I don't know. There was a measure of hope that Al-Anon had given me, and we have a lot of hope in Al-Anon. So I said, you can come back, but you have to sleep on the couch. He said, that's fine. I just need to put my life in order. And so he came back into our home, and he started working a program like I haven't seen anybody work, you know. So they say 90 meetings in 90 days. He went to three meetings a day for a year. And some weekends he would go to a couple of extra meetings, the late night meetings. So our lives just began to change so much. I was still working my Elanon program. He started working an AA program. And then we had that to share. And our boys grew up with a sober daddy and a much saner mother. And it's all because of Elanon. I never would have taken any of those steps. I, just, I wouldn't have had the courage. And so I, I owe that to al I'd like to circle back around to something you mentioned about hitting bottom before you were ready to change. And this is an important concept that a lot of family members miss, I believe. They'll think of the alcoholic or the person with the addiction 
as being the person who hits bottom before they need to change, and they don't consider what hitting bottom might look like for them as a family member and what changes they might want to make. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Okay, well, what I did, Casey, is I just kind of did a look back because Al-Anon encourages us to look at our own lives, what we're doing, our motivations, you know, everything. And as I looked honestly at what I had done, I had done everything in my power, including calling a cousin of mine who had a treatment center in Houston. She was a recovered alcoholic. And I was talking to her one day and just saying, I just don't know what else to do. And and she said, well, you know, let me ask you this. And she asked me several questions about, do you iron his clothes? Do you make food? You know, are you still preparing meals? Blah, 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 blah. And so when I got to the end of everything I was still doing to try to hold this family together, she just died laughing. And I was insulted because she was laughing and I was crying. But she just laughed and said, Diane, why would he get sober? She said, I wouldn't have got sober if somebody was doing everything for me that way. And when we hung up, I just had to look at what I was doing. And I realized that I probably in many ways was neglecting my little boys who were at that point, uh, I think maybe three and five. And uh, I just thought, Diane, you are absolutely consumed with this. I wasn't sleeping. I think I had started chewing my nails. I mean, I was a mess because the only focus I had was this alcoholic that I'd put under this magnifying glass and it consumed me. Plus it had been consuming me for years and I saw nothing but it getting worse and worse and worse. They say in Al-Anon, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Somebody said that in a meeting one time when I was going to those Austin meetings. And when she first said it, I thought, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. And then I started thinking, oh, if I don't change, (laughs) the things around me don't change. I started just digesting that a little more. Everything I heard in the meetings, I would bring home with me and digest. And, you know, I only went to one meeting a week then because it's the only one I knew about. I had to get a babysitter every time I went to the meeting to get my kids from school because I was at the meeting. And my life was a mess. And I thought, we can't both be a mess at the same time. One of us has to clean up. And it had to be me because I was the only one I could do anything about, clearly, because I had tried to do something about Jim for probably five years at that point. So that was my bottom. I hope that answers your question, Casey. It answers it beautifully. And so now, if we can keep the journey rolling, what was it like for you to get into Al-Anon, keeping in mind that some of our listeners may be just considering it or having no idea what that might look like? Well, you know, the thing I loved about the Al-Anon program is people never asked me questions about Jim, you know, in meetings. They didn't ask me to say more. They allowed me to say what I needed to say. I didn't speak in meetings probably for three months. I listened and, you know, that it was good for me. I've heard people say before, you know, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Because when I started, I needed not to talk in the meeting. I needed to listen 
And then after the meetings, people stay. And that's the time that I could talk. That's when I could go over to, you know, person X and say, I loved what you said about that. You know, could you tell me more about it? We could have personal conversations after the meeting, but I needed to listen because I didn't know anything about this program. I bought a, a reader and I took that and it was wonderful because I could have a meeting at home just by reading that book. All of our writings in al are written by people in the program. They're not written professionally. And so every reading was a story of how they were dealing with regret, fear, detachment, all the things that I was hearing in meetings that I just didn't even understand how they connected to what I was experiencing in alcoholism in my home. So it just kind of began to sink in slowly because I kept going to meetings. And I hear people say now, if you're new to Al-Anon, do give it six or seven meetings. Meetings are different. And I just went to that one because it's the only one I knew of. I didn't know much about Al-Anon then. So I was just ignorant about that too. But I had found this group of people who were loving, supporting, non-judgmental, always welcoming, and would allow you to say what you needed to say. And, you know, I never felt shamed. I could share. When I did start sharing, I shared. Nobody said, oh, I liked what you said, or, you know, they don't respond that way in Al-Anon. What we come together is to share for everybody present, our experience, our strength, and our hope, and you take it or leave it. Not everybody I hear in Al-Anon may touch a chord in me with what they say, but every time I leave an Al-Anon meeting, I have heard something I needed to hear. Even though these many years later, I still go to Al-Anon meetings every single week, at least twice a week. We finish by saying, using these principles in all our affairs. I use this program with my grown children today, with everybody I know. I have friends who I can look at and say, oh my gosh, she's so messed up about that. But I can't fix her. So I can love her and encourage that woman in whatever she's struggling with. And I use Al-Anon principles all the time out in the world. My life is better today because of Al-Anon. I know that. So now I'm gonna do something that they wouldn't do in the meetings, which is I am gonna ask about Jim. Okay. Was he able to get sober, and was he able to stay sober? He was. When he came back and asked to come home, as I say, there was just something about, uh, he was he was desperate, and he had just been arrogant before. And when he called, he came home, he did sleep on the couch all summer long. As I said, he went actually to three meetings every day. He would go to the noon meeting, the 5 p.m. meeting before he came out for work. We would eat and then he would go back for an eight o'clock meeting. So every day he was going to three meetings. So he got his 90 meetings in actually in less than 30 days. But that just proves that he was ready. You know, I couldn't have made him want to get sober. Alcohol had to do it to him. And sadly, some people don't get it. I've realized that there are people who don't get sober. 
And I feel very blessed that he got sober, and I feel even more blessed that he got sober through an AA program, because then we shared this 12-step program for 29 years before he died. And it was good. It was good. And he worked. He had a really good AA program, and he helped a lot of people, and he was a criminal defense attorney. So he represented a lot of kids at the university here. and. Most of them, of course, get arrested for drug or alcohol. And he had such a way of introducing the idea of sobriety to people he was working with. You know, until he died, he would get letters or Christmas cards from someone he had represented saying, you know, I want to thank you. And he or she would send a picture of them with their new family, one or two children, and say, I owe my sobriety to you. Because of that example, he could set that you could be happy, joyous, and free without alcohol. Because he was never gonna be that with alcohol. It was amazing. I always think to myself, I was thinking about this actually yesterday. When Jim died, the pastor at our church told me he felt there were more than 700 people there. And, you know, I thought that was a testament to a life well-lived, and it was well-lived after he got sober. He was always a good guy, but alcohol uh, just made him a different person. So it was really bad, and then it got so good, and it stayed good until he died. And he got sober, and that's all he wanted. He said to me one time, we were talking about death, he said, I don't care when I die, I just want to die sober. And he did. And about how long ago was that? That was in 2012. It would be 10 years this June. Yeah. 10 years. Yeah. And you're still going to meetings? Absolutely, because I'm doing it for me. And I can't <laughs> help about, but notice. It's my life. <laughs> and I can't help but notice the parallel. When you started going to meetings all those years ago, you met the woman who was still going after her husband had passed away. And you said, well, why are you still going to meetings? But now it's you. Exactly. Elizabeth would be very proud of me that I'm still going to meetings. And she would understand why I am. I mean, it just, it, it, it amazes me how I use this program in all of my life. I'm just grateful. You know, I can say honestly today, I am a grateful Al-Anon. I'm actually grateful I married Jim. It was a rough patch there when we suffered with his alcoholism, and we both suffered with it. But he was the only one who could make the change to make it better for him, which would in turn make it better for me. But I'm the only one who could make it better for me in the long run and really make it better for me. And uh, I'm just, you know, I'm grateful I married an alcoholic because if I hadn't, I never would have found Al-Anon. I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. A lot of people in Al-Anon have, and some people are there because they're married. I mean, they have alcoholic parents, and I think that's one reason I was so ignorant about it. I just never knew someone, or if I knew an alcoholic, I didn't know they were alcoholic. Yeah. A lot of people who are familiar with AA or are interested in it might notice people get a sponsor, which is like a mentor who walks you through the steps in the recovery process. 
And I wonder, in Al-Anon, what's your experience been of that? Well, that's kind of interesting. I didn't get a sponsor probably for the first two years I went to Al-Anon. And I think after about two years, I started coming to meetings in San Marcos. We had a really small group. In fact, the first time I went to a meeting, it was at a place now that serves kind of as a homeless shelter here in, in San Marcos. And, and there were two women and they were meeting in a broom closet. I had enough from the Austin group that it didn't discourage me that there were only three of us. And before we knew it, there were 10 of us and then 15 of us and the program grew immensely. And we moved and got a better location or larger location. And where did sponsorship come into that? Oh yes, so I I decided that it was time for me to get a sponsor. But the advice in Al-Anon is In meetings, when you hear someone talking about their program and they have something you want, that that's one way you can approach someone who's in the program and ask them to be your sponsor. So I did remember a woman in Austin that a lot of times she would have stayed after and talked to me. So I called her and asked her if she would be my sponsor. And she said she would. And so for many years, she was my sponsor and we would talk on the phone. Occasionally, I would go to the same meeting where she was, but mostly we just talked on the phone. And when I would have questions or when I'd done some fourth step work, I would share it with her. And then we drifted apart. I got busy here. I went to work full time. And then I got another sponsor and had her for a long time. And she recently died. So right now I am without a sponsor, which doesn't worry me a lot because I'm talking to somebody who serves as a sponsor, but we're kind of not calling it sponsoring yet. I just called her and said, I need somebody to talk to and run things by. Are you willing to do that? And it might work into a sponsor relationship. There are some things I didn't want to talk about in meetings that were just more intimate issues in my life. And so I could talk to my sponsor about anything. And again, I think it's important that both of my sponsors I trusted implicitly. And that's the wonderful thing about Al-Anon. We say in the meetings, everything we say is anonymous. We don't talk about what happens in meetings. We listen but I don't go home and say to somebody, oh my gosh, you'll never believe what Martha said, or, you know, it's not done. And that's why I felt so safe to share the horror that was going on in my home. Some of it in a meeting and all of it, I could talk to my sponsor about. And the sponsor is someone who's been in the program longer, has been working a program for a while, and can share the wisdom and the strength they've gotten from it. And, you know, I got good recommendations on what to read if I was having a problem, or you might think about this, Diane, you know, write about this. I do a lot of writing about my life, my frustrations, because I need to get it out. When my husband died, most of my grief was done through writing because I'd done so much writing in Algon, realizing that it just pours out of me. That's the way I respond to writing. It just, it's like stream of consciousness always and much more pours out of me when I'm writing than if I'm just talking about it. And uh, so I do a lot of writing, but most of my writing I share with my sponsor. 
You know, for me, it works because if I say it, it takes so much power out of it. All the secrets I keep up here in my head that I never share with anybody. Somebody said in a meeting one time, they just get bigger and blacker. And they do. It got worse for me the more secrets I tried to hold in. I was holding so many secrets when I came into Al-Anon. And just little by little, I could talk about that and talk about the betrayal I felt by him doing that to us and just my frustration at not being able to fix it. I wasn't proud of that. I thought if you were a good wife, you ought to be able to fix that. And you know, it had nothing to do with my being a good wife or not. It had everything to do with me being honest with myself and just saying, Diane, this is bigger than you and admit that. It was really hard for me to admit I was powerless. Ooh, I didn't like that. Didn't like that one bit. And yet that is the first step of the program. Yes, it is. Let's take a break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll hear the rest of Casey's interview with Diane. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. If you like what we're doing in Addiction and the Family, here are some ways you can help support it and carry the message further. If you haven't read Casey's book, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, it is now available in paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers. It's also available on Kindle, Nook, and Apple Books. If you have read it, tell a friend, family member, or anyone you meet who might benefit from its message. If you feel so inspired, please write a review on Amazon or any of the other retailers. Last but not least, we are on Patreon under Addiction and the Family. Thanks for all your support. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Here's the rest of Diane's interview. And a lot of people would understand why someone with an alcohol problem or any other addiction would work the 12 steps to help them with their problem. Can you talk about why it is that someone in Al-Anon would work pretty much those same steps and what you've gotten out of it? Right, well, the big steps they made is I grew up going to church as a little girl. We went to church all the time. So I was taught there was a God. That was pretty much the same all the time I was in my home with my family growing up. I went to college, and as many college students do, I did not get up and go to church on Sunday mornings. I kind of pulled away from the church. And my husband grew up also in a church where his daddy was the music director. So when we met, he said, I've had all the church I need. You know, he just wasn't a church person. He was not an agnostic and he was not an atheist, but he just wasn't a churchgoer. So we married in a church, but we were not what I would say faithful people to the church or Christianity then. If you ask us, yeah, we believed in God, but you know, don't go any further than that. We didn't talk about it. But when I came into Al-Anon, I heard God. I didn't have a problem with that. I realized some people do because of their prior experiences with church or religion. But I heard him talk about it, but you know, I read the first step. I finally realized I was powerless, so I got that. But then I had to start thinking about the second step, that there was a power greater than me. And oh, that was 
such a bitter pill to swallow because I was the wife. I should be able to do this. But there was a woman shared in a meeting one day and she talked about having been married to an alcoholic and he died. And she waited several years and she remarried and she said, I married a man who didn't drink because I didn't want to deal with alcoholism again. And she said, after we were married for a while, he started to drink. And she said, I'm here today because he's on the couch where my husband died. And you know, her story just burned a hole right through me. She's the reason that I stopped on the highway coming home on the side of the road and just started to weep because I realized that I was powerless, number one, and that maybe just because of everything I had heard in Al-Anon, just maybe there was a power greater than myself because there were people who had overcome the disease of alcoholism in their home. Even if the person was still drinking, they were in Al-Anon who still lived with an active alcoholic, but they weren't obsessed with it because they were working a program and they had a higher power. So I really came to grips with, you know what, Diane, you're not the higher power. You have got to have faith that if it happens for other people, maybe it can happen for you. And so I took that third step and just turned my life and my will over. I had to fake it in the beginning and just say the words. You know, some people say, fake it till you can make it. But I just prayed, not even really knowing what I was praying for. But I just got up in the morning and I just thought, please be with me and show me the way. And I don't even know who I was praying to, Buddha. You know, it didn't, it didn't matter. It was a higher power at that point. And so that really catapulted my program when I was finally able to say, you are powerless. And you know, today I find that as a relief. I am so grateful that I'm powerless in so many situations because it means I don't have to get all in a twist about everybody else's problems. I look at it and think, do I have any control in this situation? If I do, then I'm happy to say something. But if I have no control over it, I let it go. I turn it over. I ask for my higher power, who I now call God. I ask that it be in those hands that are much greater than mine. I look back and even my faith journey has grown because of Al-Anon. I wouldn't be where I am in my church life today. And I love my church. And I take what I like and leave the rest because I learned that in Al-Anon. Not everything I hear in church fits me, but that's okay. Not everything I hear in Al-Anon fits me, and that's okay. I take what is useful for my life to be the best version of myself I can be in both locations. And if I died tonight in my sleep, I'm at peace, I'm happy, I have a wonderful life wonderful life. That is so fantastic. 
And you talked about it being a relief to understand that you were powerless over somebody else's alcohol use. But I kind of think it's really only relief if it's followed up by the next couple of steps right. in embracing a spiritual solution. And at that point, then it becomes a relief. Right. And I don't think I could take the first step, honestly, until I did accept that I can't do it, but something can. This power that I can't name, I don't know how it's going to present itself. Of course, I prayed that my husband would find such a program. But to tell you the truth, when I did the restraining order, he was out of my life. I just, I really didn't spend a lot of time worrying or thinking about him because I had to take care of myself and our little boys. And uh, the fact that he got sober is icing on the cake, icing on the cake. I didn't do it, he did it. He did say, I think we need to get rid of all the alcohol. You know, when I come home and, and maybe I'd already gotten rid of it when he was gone. But after about a year or two, he was sober enough that he wanted to be able to serve a drink to our friends who came for dinner or came over to visit. And that really scared me. But again, not my wheelhouse. You know, the man was a grown man. He could buy whatever he wanted to. And, uh, you know, he never took another drink. 29, I think he died 29 years sober. I think that's what he had. One time I said, does it bother you when they drank? And he said, Diane, you could give me a 45 in one hand and a glass of scotch in the other and say, which one? And I would tell you, fire away. He said, nothing will make me drink again. I would rather die than drink. So I knew then that he had gotten it and he stayed gotten it. He knew that all the gifts of his life were because of sobriety and all the gifts of my life were because of Al-Anon. We were real clear about that. That is so cool. So the last thing that I'm gonna ask is, if you could go back and talk to young Diane, way back at the beginning of your recovery process, mm-hmm. what would you want to say to her? Oh my gosh. You know, I have actually thought about what would life be like if I hadn't gotten involved with an alcoholic? (laughs) And I wouldn't want that life. But if I went back, I think what I would want more of, I realize in retrospect, in doing my Al-Anon program, that's where I realized it, that I gave over much of myself when Jim never asked me to. He never said, give up your friends. I did. We went with his friends. I sort of put him on a pedestal early on. And so whatever he said kind of went. And of course, I grew up in a different era than today. I do think that the young women today, maybe even the young men, have more of a sense of themselves. I grew up in the 50s, for heaven's sakes, when you had, you know, all those family shows on where mother always had the apron on and daddy was the king of the family and all that. So Jim and I both grew up with that. So we did not argue and fight a lot, but he mostly made the decisions. I gave over a lot, but 
in retrospect, I think he never asked me to. I just did it. Maybe I should have argued more. So I think that's what I would say to the young Diane is you are more capable than you think you are. You have more to offer in a relationship than you think. I don't think I realized who I was through and through until I got into Al-Anon and really examined myself. And, you know, I'm proud of myself, Casey. I, I don't say that in a prideful way, but I'm proud of myself that I have committed myself to such a healthy program as Al-Anon, that I commit to doing it even after the alcoholic is gone, because I realize it's for me and it's self-love. And if you'd said self-love when I was growing up, oh my gosh, that was what we thought was arrogance and narcissism. And that's not what loving yourself enough to take serious action to become the best person you can be and hope that those people around you see it and maybe are inspired by it. You know, Jim did say, I heard his story told many times in AA meetings, and he often said, the best thing Diane ever did for me was take out a restraining order. And he said, it made me face the true consequences of my drinking. And that's not why I did it. It wasn't a threat. It was my final, get out of here. I, I, I'm sick of it, I'm done. Fortunately, he asked to come back. And only because of Al-Anon, I just thought, you know, it just sounds a little bit different. Maybe there's hope, and if there isn't, I know what to do. And as I say, three months turned into 29 years of wonderful sobriety. It was great. It is so great to hear that. So Diane, I just want to thank you again for coming out and sharing your story and your recovery with me and with all the people who get to listen to this. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for years, but never got to hear the whole thing in one place. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Casey. I appreciate your doing this work. It's really powerful. And there are a lot of people out there who need to hear it. So thank you for that. Truly. It is my pleasure. And that's the interview. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionandthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.